0: Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legal listening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. Hey, welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today.
1: Hi there, welcome to Legal Listening, where Audio Obiter is our thing. We are once again so pleased to collaborate with Little Legal Summaries by providing an audio version of the April 2021 recap. Here are some of the most impactful cases from the Court of Appeal for Ontario and the Supreme Court of Canada published in April 2021 the Queen and Mudai, 2021 ONCA 200, two appeals were heard together, one, Thibault and Valiant, and two, Bashir and Mudai. The two sets of charges are unrelated, but both prosecutions turns on the admissibility of communications intercepted pursuant to the same authorization. In both cases, the accused sought the exclusion of the evidence obtained under the authorization. The trial judge in Thibault Valiant found that the authorization was properly granted and that there was no violation under Section 8 of the Charter. The trial judge in Bashir Mudai found the opposite. The authorization was not properly granted and there was a violation under Section 8 and thereby excluding the evidence under Section 24-2 of the Charter. It is important to note that the authorization in this case was obtained over seven years after the offense in question, which was a murder. The police investigation has been stale for years. While different judges asked to grant an authorization may reach different conclusions as to whether to grant an authorization, the question assessed by a reviewing judge as to whether the authorization could have been granted is a question of law. Only one trial judge can be correct. Section 186 sub 1 governs whether an authorization should be granted. The issuing judge must be satisfied, one, that it would be in the best interests of the administration of justice to do so, and two, that other investigative procedures have been tried and have failed, other investigative procedures are unlikely to succeed, or the urgency of the matter is such that it would be impractical to carry out the investigation of the offense using other investigative procedures. Section 186 Sub 1 Sub A, Best Interests The best interest requirement imposes a quote-unquote reasonable and probable grounds standard. In other words, the issuing judge must be satisfied the affidavit in support of the application for authorization contains reasonable and probable grounds to believe that the named offenses are being or have been committed and that the interceptions will afford evidence to those offenses. See the Queen and Beauchamp. Reasonable and probable standard, also referred to as probable cause, requires more than suspicion, but less than proof on a balance of probabilities. There must be a credibly based probability the interceptions will afford evidence of the named offences. An interception will, quote, afford evidence if the proposed interceptions are anticipated to shed light on the circumstances of an alleged offence, or the involvement of the named targets in the offence. The interceptions do not need to provide evidence that would be admissible at trial. The review of an authorization begins with the presumption that the order was properly granted. The police in this case effectively wanted to wiretap first and use the fruits of those wiretaps to hopefully develop an investigative plan which would then, ex post facto, provide the necessary credibly based probability to justify the interceptions under Section 186 sub 1. Section 186 sub 1 does not permit the use of authorizations for information-gathering purposes in the absence of reasonable grounds to believe the authorization will afford evidence of the named offenses. It is insufficient that the authorizations will afford evidence at some point down the road. Section 186 sub 1 sub b. Investigative Necessity In its application for the authorization in question, the police asserted that other investigative techniques were unlikely to succeed but provided no basis for that conclusion. Of note, the police conducted very little investigation to update their initial investigation prior to applying for authorization. In the absence of these attempts, it is difficult to see how one can establish that other techniques are likely to fail. The investigative necessity requirement must speak to the status of the investigation at the time the application is made, not some prior investigation years earlier. Justice Dougherty upheld Justice Corthin's section 24-2 analysis excluding the evidence. Acquittals for Bashir and Mudai upheld. Convictions for Thibault and Valiant quashed and acquittals entered. The Queen and Belli. 2021 ONCA 222 Justice Pepal, writing for the court, held that a deliberate plan to violate charter rights to further investigatory efforts necessitates the exclusion of evidence under section 24 sub 2 of the charter. In 2011, the police began investigating a suspected criminal organization operating in legal online gambling in the city of Toronto. Detective Kevin Leahy was the lead investigator. The, quote, takedown day, end quote, was to be a 2013 Super Bowl party, where members of the organization would congregate. By November 2012, the police believed the appellant was a central figure in the organization. They had conducted wiretaps and extensive surveillance, which revealed that the appellant traveled regularly between London to collect money, which would get mixed with other monies when he got home. As a result, the investigators felt they were losing evidence every week. Detective Leahy wanted to seize evidence from the appellant without compromising the ongoing investigation. Detective Leahy spoke with Andrew Sabadini, the assigned Crown, to ascertain whether the police could apply for a judicial authorization using a general warrant under Section 487.01 of the Criminal Code to obtain evidence from the appellant's vehicle without disclosing the investigation to him. The Crown indicated he would not be willing to bring forward this type of application and that it was unlikely to be authorized by a judge. As a result, Detective Leahy devised a plan inspired by the police conduct in the Queen and Dibble. In that case, police told an accused that the vehicle was being searched for a radar detection device when the true purpose was to obtain evidence of drugs. The court found that the police breached the accused Section 10A and 10B rights, but did not exclude the evidence seized. Section 10A refers to an accused right upon arrest or detention to be informed promptly of the reasons thereof, and Section 10B refers to the right to counsel. Detective Laye's plan was to conduct a stop on the appellant's vehicle on his way home from a money collection regardless of whether he committed a Highway Traffic Act offence. They would advise the appellant that they knew he was associated with members of Hells Angels and wanted to search his vehicle for contraband. This would allow the police to search for the evidence in question without arresting the appellant so as not to alert him that the police were investigating him for gambling related offenses. Detective Leahy conceded, however, that the lawyer would have to be misled. The lawyer would have to be advised the individual was under investigator detention, not arrest. In Detective Leahy's view, given that the appellant was arrestable for gaming and criminal organization offenses, the police were justified in searching him and his vehicle. Once the appellant was pulled over for speeding and an unsafe lane change, he was provided his right to counsel. The police conducted a search of his vehicle and seized approximately $75,000 in cash, a number of cell phones, and a laptop. Despite being told not to do so, the officers questioned the appellant, but he declined to answer. The appellant was detained for nearly three hours. Ultimately, a ticket was not issued and the appellant was released. The appellant was arrested over two months later at the Super Bowl party. The appellant brought a charter application to exclude the evidence seized during the traffic stop ruse. Application judge determined that the police had breached the appellant's Section 10A and 10B rights, but not his Section 8 and 9 rights, but that the evidence should not be excluded under Section 242 given that the police acted in good faith. The appellant ultimately entered a plea of not guilty for committing the indictable offense of possession of property obtained by a crime over $5,000 for the benefit of a criminal organization. As a result, the appellant was sentenced to 15 months' imprisonment. Section 24.2 In determining whether evidence should be excluded under Section 24.2, the court considers three factors, known collectively as the Grant Test. 1. The seriousness of the charter infringing state conduct. 2. The impact of the breach on the charter protected interests of the accused, and 3. Society's interest in an adjudication of the case on its merits. At its core, this case involves a planned and deliberate violation of the charter. The Crown advised the police prior to their plan that a general warrant would be granted based on their proposed plan the police devised a plan they knew would result in a charter violation. In other words, the violation was not incidental. The police's plan anticipated a breach of the charter. The Court of Appeal distinguished prior cases involving police ruses such as the Queen and Dibble, the Queen and Grant and Campbell, and the Queen and Whipple. In those cases, the impugned evidence was admitted under Section 24-2. In those cases, however, the ruse in question occurred spur of the moment in reaction to dynamic situations. This is materially different in that the breaches in this case, which were planned in advance. In conducting a fresh Section 24-2 analysis, the Court of Appeal concluded, regarding the seriousness of the state conduct, the police were not relying on a well-established line of authority when they engineered this ruse. Quite the opposite, the police devised a plan they knew or ought to have known would breach the appellant's rights. This is further aggravated by the fact that they planned to search him incident to arrest without ever arresting him. Moreover, this type of police conduct the court should disassociate itself from. This factor favors exclusion, quote, Protection of charter rights is the operative principle of the criminal justice system, not planned circumvention for investigative purposes, end quote. Regarding the impact on the appellant's charter-protected interests, the appellant was subjected to an unlawful search. He was unable to have meaningful consultation with counsel as both the appellant and counsel were misled as to the appellant's true jeopardy. This factor favors exclusion. Regarding society's interest in the adjudication of the case on its merits, this factor favors admission of evidence given the seriousness of the charges. Ultimately, Justice Peppel, writing for the court, excluded the evidence pursuant to Section 24 Sub 2 of the Charter and ordered a new trial. The Queen and Alice, 2021, ONCA 224 The appellant, Mr. Alice, was convicted by a jury for second-degree murder. On appeal, he alleges that the trial judge erred in failing to leave the defense of provocation with the jury despite his trial counsel agreeing the defense was unavailable given a lack of air of reality. Justice Tullock, writing for the court, concluded that there was an air of reality to the defense and as such should have been left with the jury. A new trial was ordered. The appellant and his fiancée attended a bar where they met Patricia Isaacs, a close friend of the appellant. The deceased attended the same bar with his friend, Kelly Bonnell. The appellant and the deceased did not know each other. Miss Isaacs, however, had encountered the deceased a few times at the bar. Throughout the evening, Miss Isaacs and the deceased had a number of interactions which she described as bullying, although other witnesses described the interactions as, quote, just joking around, end quote. Outside the bar, the deceased became physical with Miss Isaacs. Upon her return to the bar, Miss Isaacs informed the manager and the appellant's fiance of what happened. The appellant overheard and was visibly upset. He, quote, wanted to do something about it, end quote. Miss Isaacs and the appellant's fiance went outside to smoke. The appellant saw the deceased and Mr. Bonnell head for the door to leave. The appellant quickly went outside. A verbal altercation ensued between the deceased and the women. The appellant remained silent and did not interfere. The bartender tried to come outside, but the deceased blocked the door. At this point, the appellant confronted the deceased for his behavior. The deceased kept yelling at the women and flipped off the appellant's fiance. It was unclear what precipitated the physical confrontation that occurred next, but a physical fight broke out between the deceased and the women. The deceased made a threatening gesture towards the women. The appellant, who carried a knife for protection, jumped in and stabbed the deceased. While he was aiming for the deceased's chest, he stabbed the deceased's throat. The appellant's fiancee began to choke the deceased to protect the appellant when she noticed blood. The appellant and the two women fled the scene. The deceased died from a stab wound to the neck. The appellant was arrested less than 48 hours later for murder. At the conclusion of trial, defense counsel indicated he would likely not be seeking an instruction on provocation indicating it was, quote, problematic, given his doubt of the connection between what occurred inside the bar and the ultimate altercation. At the pre charge conference, defense counsel took the position that provocation was not available given the quote-unquote cooling-off period between when the appellant first learned about the initial altercation and the stabbing. Defense counsel took the position that there was no air of reality the crown agreed accordingly the trial judge did not leave the defense of provocation with the jury provocation defense the provocation defense does not vitiate the mens rea for murder rather it partially excuses an offender's conduct out of compassion for human frailty where an accused reacts inappropriately and disproportionately but understandably given a sufficient serious wrongful act see the queen and tran there are four elements to the provocation defense 1. There must be a wrongful act or insult. 2. The wrongful act or insult must be sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of the power of self-control. 3. The accused must have acted in response to the provocation. 4. The accused must have acted on the sudden before there was time for the passion to cool. The first two elements are assessed objectively. The latter two elements are assessed subjectively. The objective elements impose a quote-unquote ordinary person standard to ensure that only losses of self-control that are in keeping with society's norms are defensible. The ordinary person must be taken of the same age sex and must share other factors with the accused that would give the act or insult in question special significance. In other words, the ordinary person must be contextualized, but must not be individualized to the point of rendering it a subjective standard. The sufficiency of the wrongful act centers around its suddenness. Quote, if a wrongful act or insult is not sudden or unexpected, it is unlikely to satisfy, end quote, this requirement. Air of Reality All defenses that arise on the facts must be left with the jury regardless of whether they've been raised by an accused. Similarly, trial judges equally have a duty to keep defenses that do not meet the air of reality threshold from the jury. The air of reality asks whether there is evidence on the record upon which a properly instructed jury acting reasonably could acquit. In other words, the trial judge may engage in limited weighing of the evidence to determine if a jury acting reasonably could draw the inferences necessary to have a reasonable doubt as whether the accused is guilty on the basis of a given defense. The evidentiary burden rests with the accused. Whether there is an air reality to a defense is a question of law assessed on a standard of correctness. The case at hand. 1. Was there a wrongful act or insult? There was evidence at trial that suggested the deceased was about to strike the women outside the bar. 2. Was the wrongful act sufficient to deprive an ordinary person of self-control? The appellant was of relatively small statute, with health conditions and a history of bearing witness to violence against women. The ordinary person in this context would lose self-control when faced with a credible threat that the deceased would assault one of his female companions, particularly given that he was aware of a previous assault by the deceased against Miss Isaacs. 3. Did the accused act in response to the provocation? The stabbing occurred immediately after the deceased made a threatening gesture towards the women. The appellant reacted to this threat. Previous to this, he demonstrated restraint. 4. Were the accused actions on the sudden before there was time for the passions to cool? All parties at trial, including the trial judge, were of the view that no properly instructed jury could reasonably conclude that the appellant's actions occurred on the sudden, given the cooling-off period between the initial assault on Miss Isaacs and the ultimate altercation outside. Justice Tulloch, however, writing for the majority, concluded that there were two incidents that constituted potential provocative acts. 1. The assault on Miss Isaacs, and 2. The threatening gesture outside immediately prior to the stabbing. There was no such quote-unquote cooling-off period between the threatening gesture and the stabbing, Justice Tulloch further rejected the Crown's argument on appeal that the nature of this altercation was entirely predictable and therefore not sudden. The appellant joined the women outside knowing the deceased was leaving, he armed himself with a knife, etc. Justice Tulloch found that it remained open to the jury to conclude otherwise. The appellant could have feared a confrontation and gone outside as a safety precaution. The appellant did not begin the confrontation and only interfered when the deceased made a threatening gesture. Moreover, the provocation defense is not automatically excluded in situations where an accused arms themselves in anticipation of a potential conflict. Dissent, Justice McPherson Keep your eyes peeled, as this Alice will head to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right given Justice McPherson's dissent on an issue of law. Justice McPherson agrees that whether there is an air of reality to a potential defense is a question of law assessed on a standard of correctness. In Justice McPherson's view, defense counsel, the Crown, and the trial judge were correct in concluding there was no air of reality to the provocation defense given that there was a lengthy period of time between the deceased's interactions with Miss Isaacs inside and outside the bar and the ultimate altercation. When the deceased and the appellant left the bar around the same time, the deceased was rude towards the women but did not verbally threaten them. The deceased did not have physical contact with the women despite flipping them off. The accused transferred his knife from his pants pocket to the jacket, despite the confrontation at this point being purely verbal and the deceased not displaying a weapon. The appellant saw the deceased form a fist and in reaction attempted to stab the deceased in the chest. The appellant continued to stab the deceased for a total of six stab wounds. While a failure to object to a jury charge is not fatal on appeal, the position taken by trial counsel assists appellate courts in determining whether the defense does properly arise on the evidence. Moreover, an accused has a limited right to control his defense, and occasionally, counsel may not want to leave a defense with the jury for tactical purposes. At trial, the defense's closing address focused on Mr. Alice, quote, self-defense of another person, end quote, namely his fiancée and Miss Isaacs. In Justice McPherson's view, insisting that a trial judge leave a particular defense with the jury flies in the face of defense counsel's explicit choices about how to present their defense and runs the risk of confusing the jury. The Queen and Aslami, 2021, ONCA 249. With regards to electronic evidence, the Court of Appeal reminds trial judges of the need to engage in a rigorous analysis of electronic evidence before determining whether or not it is admissible. The reliability and probative value of digital evidence must be scrutinized The court warns of the dangers of relying on text and other digital messages that are inherently fallible They can be manipulated and falsified through the use of software or other applications For example, software can be used to create new or manipulate existing messages so they appear to be from one person when they are either fabricated or come from an entirely different person of the same vein, the timingslash data of messages can be manipulated in the same way. Moreover, in assessing the identity of a sender, it is unreliable to rely on the quote, tone, grammar, and spelling, end quote, associated with an individual. Text messages are notorious for poor grammar and spelling. Similarly, the spell check function has the ability to alter the sender's intended language. It is also unclear how a unique tone could be conveyed via text message that could be attributed solely to a particular sender. The Queen in Dindial, 2021, ONCA 234 The Court of Appeal reaffirms that the absence of a motive to fabricate does not conclusively establish that a witness is telling the truth. Trial judges must be wary to conflate the absence of evidence of a motive to fabricate or lie with a proven lack of motive. The mere absence of evidence of motive to fabricate cannot usurp the credibility assessment of a witness. The Queen and Stenet, 2021, ONCA 258 The appellant was driving home from a nightclub after consuming alcohol. The road was wet. He lost control, which caused the vehicle to rotate, strike a curb, leave the roadway, and hit a parked car in which, in turn, struck a number of other vehicles. The appellant who was the driver, and the front seat passenger suffered significant injuries but everyone thankfully survived. The appellant argues that the trial judge erred in finding that the accident was caused by grossly excessive speed in part because these findings were contrary to the tendered agreed statement of facts. Justice Watt, writing for the court, held that even though an agreed statement of facts is named agreed statement of facts, it does not make the content of the agreed statement of facts that cannot be clarified, amplified, or even rebutted with other evidence. The appellant also argued that the trial judge misapprehended the evidence in reaching the conclusion that the collision was caused by grossly excessive speed. See paragraphs 48-60 to 60 for an overview of the governing principles regarding misapprehension of evidence.
0: Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. Hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at legallistening.com.